Uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah 53. As, uh, as we looked at earlier, Paul said that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we are proclaiming, proclaiming or declaring or expounding or showing or demonstrating his death. In Isaiah 53, um, we have a striking passage written about someone, and we'll uh, see who this is about. Let's start actually in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's a long passage, but it's good. 52, 13. Behold my servant. Now, the person speaking is, is God. Isaiah is speaking, but as a prophet, he's giving us the mind of God. He says, Behold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was... This thing's coming off. Sorry. Hold on. Technical commercial. Just as many, verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness that is beauty. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So, this passage has uh, been interpreted by Christians for, for centuries, 
as applying to Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. And if you and when you read it, it, it seems clearly to apply to Jesus, right? Because when we look, we learn the New Testament that Jesus bore our sins, and, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the striking thing about this passage in Isaiah is that it's so clearly alluding to Jesus that many scholars uh, of a century ago were adamant in saying there's no way that this could this could have been written before Jesus. It's just like too clear, too obvious, too... And so these anti-theistic theologians... That's a contradiction in terms, anti, but, but it's true. The anti-supernatural theologians and thinkers said, well, surely this must have been written like after Jesus sometime and, you know, Christians are trying to make it look like this was written beforehand. Well... Anybody heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? In the 1950s, some in, in the Middle East, there were some some boys playing out in, in these caves, and they stumbled across these jar these these jars of uh, clay, and they cracked one open, and they were filled with scrolls, scrolls of scripture, Old Testament scripture, scrolls, other documents related to a community, the Qumran community. Uh, in the Middle East. And scholars found the book of Isaiah, they found much of the Old Testament, I think all of the Old Testament actually, in, in these scrolls. And so they studied the scrolls, they dated the scrolls to determine how old they were, and you know what they found out? The scrolls were written hundreds of years before Jesus. And in, in those scrolls was Isaiah, and in those scrolls was this passage. So for a hundred years, um, liberal scholars were saying, well, Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah was written maybe before Jesus, but the second part, no, was written later because it's too, too obviously pointing to Jesus. Well, lo and behold, we find out that in fact Isaiah was written before Hundreds of years before Jesus. So do you think it's talking about Jesus? When you read the uh, scriptures, Old and New Testament, it's clear that this personage that's being referred to was the Messiah, the Savior. And when you read the New Testament, the Gospel accounts, etc., you see how clearly accurate these these prophecies were regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Now let me just say a word about the Gospels for, for you skeptics that are here. Um, the, well, let me say this first. When we talk about the death of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus, the first thing I want, we, we need to understand is that the, the death of Jesus is... An historical fact. I got one amen and one uh-huh. All right. All right. I got one hallelujah. Thank you. Okay. Now, now this is important. You've got, you got to bear with me here. It's a historical fact. 
Now, I know that there have been some, some uh, liberal scholars who have disputed the historicity of the Gospels and that sort of thing. But the, here's, here's the reality. That when it comes to ancient documents, ancient documents, whether you're talking about uh, the documents of uh, literature like Homer, whether you're talking about philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, whether you're talking about uh, um, some of the early Roman historians, ancient documents, the, the textual evidence for the Gospels, and really all of Scripture, but mainly the Gospels and the New Testament, the textual evidence is so overwhelming compared to the textual evidence that we have for other ancient documents. I mean, we're talking about not just hundreds of copies, in some cases, thousands of copies. Now, I have a Greek New Testament, and I have the, the what's called the critical edition, which means they give you a lot of footnotes to confuse you. <laughs> and and uh, I read the introduction right to this this critical uh, New Testament, and and it says in the introduction. Uh, by the way, it didn't say by the way. My paraphrase. We have so many manuscripts we haven't even checked them all. Yeah. We we we're not even able to collate all of the all of the evidence that we have for the Greek New Testament. When you look at other ancient documents, we might have five copies of something, maybe ten copies of something. And when it comes to the life and death of Jesus, we have thousands and thousands of fragments. Uh, and they're full or partial fragments of the Gospels. We have secular historians and writers of Jesus' own day, Josephus, who was not a Christian. We have pagan writers of the day who refer to Jesus and the fact that Christians believe that he died and rose from the dead. That Jesus died on a cross is not a question of dispute. It's a historical fact. It's as, it's as historical as me standing here today. Jesus lived in Galilee. He had a ministry. He preached. He, he fed people. He healed people. He died on a cross. And according to the Gospels, he also rose from the dead. And um, one of the reasons I'm stressing this, and I believe one of the reasons God gives us this, this sacrament is called, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, where we, we proclaim, remember, celebrate the Lord's death, is because I think by nature, I think it must be a na- like by nature thing, I don't know. But I think we tend by nature to be Gnostic. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, is that even for those of us who've been Christians for, for a number of years, Jesus can become an ideal. You know what I mean? So, so we can talk about the Jesus' death and, and this and that, and it becomes like an ideal and a symbol and a source of inspiration and and it it gets divorced from historical reality flesh and blood reality 
Christianity is different than many other uh, world religions in that it is its its most important features, which are the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, are all rooted in space-time history. You understand what I'm saying? Now, other religions have have stories of their God dying and coming back to life. But none of them have ever rooted it in history. So, it's easy for us to think about Jesus, and Jesus becomes an ideal and an idea, and we forget that Jesus is a real person. And you notice I said is, and not just was. So, the first thing we have to remember as we proclaim the Lord's death is that we're talking about the death of a real human being in real space-time history on a real cross made out of real wood, crucified with real nails being pounded in. It was real. It was bloody. It was messy. It was it was a bad scene. There's, I, I, I think, to, to dispute that it really happened, you'd have to throw out anything written before Jesus' time and say, we can know nothing. Which is not, which is not what we do. So it's a fact. Historical fact. The question is, what's the significance of the fact? If you remember, when you read the Gospels, we have an account where Jesus is on the cross and there's two other guys next to him, right? One on the right and one on the left. Well, what made Jesus' crucifixion any different than theirs? They died on a cross. Matter of fact, in Rome, in, in, in that time, crucifixion was a fairly common way to put people to death, criminals to death. So a lot of people were crucified. So what made Jesus' death, his crucifixion, why was it different than the people next to him? Well, it's different for two reasons. One who he was, and two, what God was doing, who he was. In our text in in Isaiah, through here, this servant is called my righteous servant. He's called, it says here that he has no deceit. And when you read scripture, what you find is that Jesus Christ was not only a historical man, but he was a sinless man. So he's in a whole unique class because he did not sin. Not only did he not sin, but Scripture says that this Jesus was also divine. We just went through the Christmas season. You know what we were celebrating? That God became a man. That, if you really meditate on that, it'll blow your mind. Your brains will fall out of your head, onto your, onto your study, onto your table. It, 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 God came down, if you will. God entered into space. I mean, we're talking about, you, you know, when I say God, I mean God. I mean, look at the universe. The being with that intelligence, the being with that power that could create this universe that we're just now beginning to see a little bit of? 
the billions and trillions and quadrillions and I don't know the next number of stars and maybe even galaxies. I mean, there's so, it's like, that God? Yeah, that God. And he comes, he enters into the human experience, literally and physically. He enters into the human experience. He lives a perfect life, but not an easy life. As it says in Isaiah, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And that's that's not talking about when he died on the cross. That's talking about his life. Jesus, you know, I don't know where some of you are, but I know this, whatever difficulty you're facing, Jesus understands. And it's not just theoretical. He understands sorrow and grief. He understands physical pain. He understands weariness. Jesus understands all of that because he lived it literally in space-time history. But the one thing that made Jesus different than all of us is that he didn't sin, you see. So that made him unique, and that made his death unique. Because here's what the Bible says about sin. It's very simple. It says, the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Now, the word wages is a different word for payment, right? So in other words, um, when you sin, you um, have earned death. Now, that might sound really depressing to you. (laughs) But I remember when... I was raised in a, not in really in a Christian home, but I, I had enough church experience to know that I didn't like God and I didn't like church. But it's because I was hearing a false gospel. I was hearing the gospel of be good. I was not hearing the gospel of God's love. And think about this. Think about an infinitely perfect being in every way. And then think about trying to please him. Ain't going to happen. You could never measure up. Never. You could never measure up. It's not going to happen. He's always going to, there's always going to be some, some, something he's not happy about. There's always going to be something, some area where you're failing and displeasing him. So who wants a God like that? Not me. So I rejected God and the whole notion of God. But I was hearing that, that false gospel of be good rather than the gospel of God is good. Good in the sense of benevolent and kind and loving. Okay? So Jesus, back to Jesus. He is unique in his sinlessness, unique in his divinity. So when Jesus hung on the cross... Something unique was happening. Because, see, for someone who sins to die, that's the natural course because the wages of sin is death. But now we have somebody who didn't sin and they're going to die. Huh. Something unique is happening. And the significance of the death of Jesus, although, and now please understand, the death of Jesus was just as historical as his birth. As his life, it's a fact, just, you know, it's real wood, there was real wood on the cross. 
But the value of that death has to do with what God was doing. What was God doing when Jesus died? That's the question. Because you see, when an average person who sins, when they die, what God is doing is God's letting nature take its course. That's all he's doing. They're just experiencing the natural result of, of being part of a fallen order. Fallen meaning a, a, an order in which sin has been introduced. But Jesus wasn't sinful, so how, how and why was he dying then? If the wages of sin is death, then wait a minute. He didn't sin, so what's going on here? Why is the sinless one dying? Well, in Isaiah, and many other places we're told, but let's just look here in Isaiah. It says in verse 4 of chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Wow. You see, what this is saying is that although Jesus himself did not sin, when he was on the cross, what was really happening is that God was placing our sins upon him. Our sins upon Him. Well, if He took my sin upon Himself, well, then He could die. Because the wages of sin is death. Right? My sin upon Him. Your sin upon Him. This was something that God was doing at the historical moment that Jesus was literally on that cross. Yeah, I read a I read a blog the other day. I don't I don't read many blogs. Um, it's just too crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just crazy out there, man. So, um, this Christian writer was basically saying that the death of Jesus wasn't the handiwork of God. Um, it was because, you know, he preached things people didn't like, and so they, you know, they crucified him in this. And, and it was, it was, uh, about as wrong as you could be when it comes to understanding what was really happening regarding the cross. Jesus didn't die by accident. It was prophesied hundreds of years before his life that he would die. And that's why in the book, that's why Jesus himself said, he said repeatedly during his life, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to reject me, they're going to kill me. He said that before it happened. And then we read in the book of Acts where uh, Peter says that uh, he's talking to the Jews, he says, you, you, you guys, you leaders, you basically, you're responsible for, for, Jesus being crucified, but he was crucified by God's 
foreordination, meaning that God planned this thing. He planned this to happen. Well, he at least planned it a couple hundred years before Jesus because we have Isaiah. Well, it's really amazing, and Scripture tells us that God planned it before he even created the world. The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. That means that when God decided, which is a weird thing to say because God doesn't think what's called discursively like we doesn't, you know. But when God decided to create, it was really a decision for Jesus to die. And so the cross has always been in the heart of God. Always. And he always saw it. Jesus always knew he was destined for that. And so when Jesus was dying, he was taking the sins, our sins, and he was placing them upon Jesus so that when Jesus died, he was stricken. It says in this text in verse 10 that it pleased the Lord. Now, if you know your Bible, that Lord here in verse 10 is all caps, right? Which means that it's Jehovah. Jehovah. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So Jesus wasn't just stricken by men. The men were the instrument by which God could accomplish his purpose of punishing the sin of the world in his son. In his son. Why did he do that? He did that so that those of us who have sinned might not have to experience That punishment. Because his son took our place and received the punishment for us. For us. Jesus didn't die for himself because he was sinless. He died for others. He even said in the gospel several places, I've come to give my life a ransom for many, a payment so that others might be set free. And so, at that moment in time, that historical space-time event where Jesus is on the cross and there's the, the, the two criminals, at least two, next to him, and they're being crucified. While these two men were dying for their sins, Jesus was dying for their sins. But not for his own sins. And Jesus was dying for the sins of the world, we're told. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, as Christians, some of you, many of you are Christians, some of you are are probably not. But as Christians, the Lord instituted this ordinance because he said, do this and remember me, do this and remember me. Because this is the foundation. This is the fountain, if you will, from which flows all of the blessings that we have as Christians. If we do not believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, 
then none of the blessings described in Scripture, none of the blessings offered to the believer apply to us. None of them. Because everything that God gives the Christian is rooted in this fundamental historical fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And when we truly believe that, we now have a way to God. We now have a way to God. Because the barrier between me and God has been removed through what Jesus did. And the, and the, the, the joy, the love, the peace, the power, the victory, the, the gifts that God gives us through His Holy Spirit, all of the many blessings of the Christian life are all rooted in this work. And I'm pointing to the, I'm pointing to the bread and wine because these are symbols. This is a symbol of his body. This is a symbol of his blood. And, 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 and everything that we have is rooted in what Jesus did on that cross. And so we cannot forget it and we cannot spiritualize it where we make, we push it out, if you will, into this Gnostic realm of, uh, an example of love. Well, it was an example of love, yes. But it was a literal death in my place. Literal death in my place. Where God was punishing Jesus for me that I might not have to incur the punishment for my sins. Hence that I might be forgiven. Hence that I might be accepted by Him. Hence that I might be part of His family. Hence that I might have His Holy Spirit dwell in me. Hence that I might have a relationship with Him. Hence that I might have victory in my life. And you go down the list of all the blessings that we have as Christians. It's all rooted in His death and His resurrection. All of it. The, the false gospel, and there are many, but at the root of, of many false gospels is this very simple confusion over our part and God's part. My concluding comment is this. The benefits of the, of the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, are received by faith and faith alone. The call of the gospel, which literally means good news, is not change and God will love you. It's not turn over a new leaf. It's not get your act together and then when you finally clean yourself up, you can now go to church. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God loved us even while we were yet sinners. Even while. And he, his son Jesus died for us even while we were his enemies. And we are invited to enjoy the benefits of what Jesus did for us. And we receive him 
and his benefits by faith. Now, if you truly believe in Jesus, well, you will change. And if you don't change, then maybe you've not really believed in Jesus. Maybe you're still believing some Gnostic thing. But you, you don't change to be a Christian. You become a Christian and then you change. God works always from the inside out. He changes the heart. He gives you a new heart. And when your heart changes, guess what? Some of the things you were doing, you don't want to do them anymore. Many of the the things that I did as a non-Christian, many bad things that I did after I became a Christian, I didn't want to do them anymore. No one had to tell me not to do those things. I didn't want to do them because God had changed my heart. You know... If you uh, you like you like little creatures, right? Reptiles and or is it your brother? Both. Yeah. My daughter's in a reptile. She likes chameleons and water dragons and all this kind of creepy stuff. Yeah, you can take a you can take a chameleon and a chameleon can change his colors, right? But it's still a chameleon. It doesn't matter what colors. It's still a chameleon. You can take a pig and put it in a tuxedo. It's still a pig. You can take a human being and send them to church. They can wear a tie. They can even put on a clerical robe. They can preach. They can lead worship. They can hand out the sacraments. But if their heart's not regenerated, they're not a Christian. So the question is, is... that we want to ask as we take the Lord's Supper is, is, where's my heart? And do I really believe in the real Jesus? And do I, do I really believe that he died on that cross for me? That's the question that we want to ask ourselves. And if we do believe that, then we take the, the elements and we take them in faith, recognizing their symbolic value. Because they represent that historical fact of his death. Let's stand together and have a word of prayer. Let's all bow our heads together. I know many of you know the Lord. You, you've been a Christian for many years. But I encourage you to pause and contemplate how precious your Savior is once more, and how valuable His death was, and that Jesus Christ died for you. If you're not a Christian here today, Jesus says this to you, Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. Maybe you've always thought Christianity was something that you had to do. Most importantly, Christianity is about what Christ has done for you. And is offering you the benefits 
of His death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, acceptance with God, a new relationship with God, eternal life. I could go down the so many blessings that He's offering to you, but you must take it by an act of your heart. You must embrace Him and His work by faith. Yes, Jesus, I believe. Thank you, Jesus, that you took my sins upon yourself. If you believe that, then, of course, you are welcome to partake of the elements today. Dear Lord, we thank you as we remind ourselves once again of your great love for us and your great work on our behalf. I pray that we would, as a people, truly walk in the reality of the fullness of what you've done. We just give you all the, all the praise and honor and glory today and pray in your name. Amen.